welcome to a new episode of Down the Rabbit Hole, episode 52. And today we have a very interesting topic, how to rebuild after the apocalypse. Yeah. Carl? Yeah, well, um, I I hope I'm not around for this. <laughs> That's all I can yeah, say. Yeah, I don't know. I'm Probably getting, we won't be. I'm getting too old for this apocalypse <laughs> stuff. Right? Do you have maybe time to prepare for it? I'm not sure I do, yeah. actually. You know, I, uh, I'm approaching uh-huh. the end rapidly, so... Uh-huh. And I have nowhere to store dry goods or tin food. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> or water. Or water. Yeah, so it's a very interesting subject. Yeah. Uh, you should stay because uh, there's a lot of people that can obsess about this topic. Well, there are a lot of people obsessed yeah. about this. There's a whole industry out there, uh-huh, I uh, uh-huh. suspect. Mostly in North America, I think, but... Yeah, I'm sure there are people in Europe as well. Yeah, yeah, obsessed with even building uh, uh, how are they called uh, bunkers, uh, bunkers and all this stuff. But uh-huh. obviously, the world seems more unstable to us now, doesn't it? Yeah. It seems so I think that this might be a new. Uh, r- it's very resonant. rising opportunity for business. It's very resonant. I think, this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I think there are opportunities. Yeah. Anyway. Let's, yeah. Let's uh, start let's... now with some news, and then we come to this topic. Okay. Some new new news. Yeah. Some quite worrying <laughs> For stuff. this week? Yes. Yeah. Kind of following on, we've touched on this kind of thing before. Before, we, to do we had some news related to a robot lawyer. And we've talked about AI uh-huh. software creeping into various yes. things, including justice systems. So today we have uh, <laughs> a headline called Sent to prison by a software program secret algorithm. Yeah, this is from the New York Times in yes. May 2017. And it followed on from... Um, um, it's okay. What's a case? It was a case. Well, it, it originally started out by somebody being asked, the chief justice of uh-huh. um, wherever it was at the top there. Yeah, the chief justice, uh, John G. Roberts... Oh, sorry, when John G. Roberts, uh, who was the Chief Justice, visited a university, I think it was, he was asked uh, a question. And the question was to do with when might we see um, software or smart machines Uh or AI um, in the courtroom. Yeah, assisting in the decisions. And potentially making judicial decisions. And the uh, and the answer uh-huh. and the answer was it's already happening, which was a surprise <laughs> to everybody apparently. <laughs> and there was this case, um, this Wisconsin man, Eric L. Loomis, Loomis. He was sentenced to six years in prison, and it was actually based in part his sentence yes. on a private company's pro- proprietary software, and this software evaluated uh, that Mr. Loomis mm-hmm. was uh, a high risk, risk of committing more crimes. Now, when we read this, we <laughs> were thinking, this is like pre-crime stuff, right? Exactly. This is, this is like Minority it's Report. Minority Report, yeah. And, and the name of the software is the Compass Report. Compass, yeah. yeah. Would be too much if they call it Minority Report. Yeah, that would be a little too Like, much. Uh, you know, copyright problems. We're, we're sure this wasn't an <laughs> April Fool's article, aren't we? No, 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 no. It's not, is it? So anyway, so this guy got six years and he's now appealing because he says his um, 
his rights have been breached uh-huh. because uh, the methodology that the software used to arrive at the conclusion was not uh, in the public view. Exactly. It wasn't a observable mm-hmm. process. And his case is And they haven't revealed what, how the algorithm how actually it works it. and exactly. did it. Yeah, because it's proprietary, right? Uh-huh. So uh, he has now appealed and uh, it is uh, waiting a hearing, I believe. Yes, so he's not waiting and let's see what happens. It's... Uh... Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh-huh. And I think we've discussed this before. This has crept in. Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody kind of was aware of it, but obviously some people were aware of it. And we're going to see more and more of this, right? Yeah, and the company says that they are not going to release, uh, you know, what the algorithms are, how are they operating, yeah. because they are proprietary. And they said, we created them, we don't release them because it's part of our core business. Yeah. So they have the right to keep them. It's very concerning, that. Like, mm-hmm. Um but you know we we've uh, we've said this uh, looked at this before that uh, we're going to see increasing amounts of this incursion of yeah. smart intelligent software ai assisted stuff mm-hmm. um coming to a job near you <laughs> yeah so yeah that's that's very interesting one so what's next the next one it's uh very interesting because says that now a machine mm. will that maybe one day, not, not right now, not but right now. They're saying, it could be possible that a machine will smell whether you are sick or yeah, not. Yeah, and what is your sickness actually based yeah. on how do you smell? Yeah, they're, they're figuring on something like five to ten years uh-huh. to develop it. Um, and basically what the researchers are, and there's actually several groups of researchers mm-hmm. in different parts of the world, all kind of trying to... Uh, get there first, shall we say, but they've got different takes on how to do yeah. it. The but based it, on this, it's because each one of us has a special what? or unique odor, yeah. and uh, it has to do with our genetics, our lifestyle, yeah. uh, even the area, the region where we live, yeah. affects all this, mm. and all the metabolic processes that we have uh, also help uh, well, they all they all add components, components into, into, into your into your uh-huh. perspiration or your breath, or and that these molecules yeah uh, can be very strong indicators of uh, disease yeah at quite early stages. This is the important thing mm-hmm. actually, and yeah, it's all these are what they call these lab lab on a chip stuff exactly. You know where it's. Uh, it's a combination of silicon technology mm-hmm. uh, and biofluidics yeah. stuff. And this is not really new. Apparently not. It's, <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, history behind this approach. Yes. Greeks and Chinese already uh, well, used to base... Ancient. Ancient ones, of course. Yeah. Uh, based on how was the scent of a patient yeah. to make the diagnose. Yeah. Now, whether they were correct or not in their diagnosis <laughs> yeah. is, is not that important, but the thing about it is there was an idea mm-hmm. that was in people's minds, and now technology is potentially going to make it real. Real. Um, some people uh, in the article was saying that the breath of a diabetic person sometimes smells of rotting apples, Yeah. and that <laughs> skin of... <laughs> Typhoid patients 
smell like baking bread. You know, we had a conversation about this. Yeah. And we thought if some, you know, if somebody had suspicious typhoid symptoms, the last thing you'd be doing is smelling them. Right? Smelling like bread. Yeah. yeah, you might go. Uh, would you like to smell the patient? <laughs> mm, bread. <laughs> some typhoid. <laughs> Um, and we know, obviously, um, currently that in various parts of the world they have specially trained dogs, for mm-hmm. example, that can yes. sniff um, certain types of cancer. And they have quite high success rates, like in the 80-plus percent. Mm-hmm. And remember we talked once about uh, birds. We did. Right? And they were used, uh, being used to diagnose uh, breast cancer. Yeah, I agree. A mammogram, <laughs> a mammogram, and the 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 pigeon, the pigeons actually, the pigeons, yeah, and they're highly trained. <laughs> yes, right? of course, they're fully certified. Right? Uh-huh. Um, they um, they are actually as accurate and sometimes more accurate than human diagnosticians uh-huh. at spotting uh, cancerous indicators on mammograms. Of course, that's not smell, right? But, no. Um, nevertheless, this is an amazing. Uh, effort, isn't it? To do, oh, it um, is. Yeah. And refreshingly, it's not a technology that that they can have the headline uh-huh. Star Trek technology, blah blah blah, because they never <laughs> they never had any smelling uh, uh, things on Star Trek, did they? Yeah, they always had things that were wandering about over people with, and but they never had uh, a sniffing. Transported, no. didn't they? So this is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. That, uh, the dev- and they're talking about five to ten years, and you could find it in your doctor's surgery. It's going to be like a phone's SIM card size. Well, it kind of look like that. Yeah. And, I mean, if you think about it, you could, within 20 years, be potentially buying these on eBay. Even in the pharmacy. Uh, yeah. Maybe. And that you could change what you want to sniff yeah. just by changing in the software, the software. settings. Yeah, that's that is the <laughs> that is the staggering thing. Now, clearly, an iPhone will have it, this on there as soon as possible. I would. Of course, yeah. Always the first, right? I'm sorry, I can't unlock this phone. You've got typhoid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or you don't smell like you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So it's a very interesting development, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we'll um, come back to it again, yep. maybe, I think. Okay. So that's the news for this week. Yeah. Let's go to the main topic. Okay. This is episode number 52 of Down the Rabbit Hole. Welcome, Carl. How are you? I am fine, Rafa. I thought it was going to be a much nicer day than it is, but... Um, it's, yeah, it's a sad day, cloudy, greyish. It's not cold. No. Um, which is an improvement. Mm-hmm. So we've got a very interesting subject today, I think. Oh, yeah. Because I think this is one of the things that people can obsess over. <laughs> for for real. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as each month goes by, I think. Uh-huh. How a- to rebuild after the apocalypse. Yeah. Now, which apocalypse will come to in a minute? Oh, exactly. <laughs> um, so this is... Uh, quite a lot of this is actually um, kind of related to a very interesting book, uh, which I happen to have 
here. I'll I'll hold it up in front of the microphone. <laughs> so you can see it. <laughs> can you hear that, people? Uh, uh, you have to do like this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. That one, Very you good. see. That book. Now right? you should be able to imagine it. Yeah, exactly. Now, how the book is. Now, this book is called uh, The Knowledge, and it is written by a guy called Lewis Dartnell. He's a professor uh, or a lecturer. And he wrote this book as a kind of primer on how do you restart everything if you have to start from nothing. Uh-huh. Um, so he imagined a scenario, which we can just touch on. Uh-huh. Yeah? So the scenario is, and if you buy this book, which I would highly recommend, uh, he starts out at the beginning of the book with looking at what are the likely scenarios, what are the most, shall we say, survivable apocalyptic scenarios. So he touches on asteroid uh-huh. strike, for example. Well, yeah, and we have talked about that. We have talked about the that. end of the world. Now, the problem with an asteroid strike is, <laughs> is like, you know, you have this potentially nuclear winter-type mm-hmm, stuff, you know, mm-hmm. because of all the stuff in the atmosphere, blah, 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 blah. Um, nuclear war, uh, chemical war biological war, these are all very complicated scenarios. But Uh the one he settled on as a good starting point Mm -hmm. was good old viral plague, right? Uh You can always rely on a viral plague, right? Mm -hmm. So he painted this scenario. So he said, uh, imagine there was an aggressive viral plague that struck this Uh little marble that we live on. And... Because, you know, the modern world is the way it is, it spreads pretty fast. super quick because we're all on hopping on planes and blah, mm-hmm. blah, And before we know it, uh, most people are dead in a matter of weeks, right? Civilization has collapsed, but you... Survive. And possibly I, I don't know. <laughs> because we'd like to carry on with these podcasts. Yes. Uh <laughs> You and I, we go down with the terrible fever, but we survive because somehow we're built of sterner stuff. Uh So here you are, you uh, come out of your raging fever and you wake up in your your cold house. Uh You've got no water coming out your taps. You've got no gas feeding your central heating and the lights don't turn on anymore. No. So what do you do? Right. Yeah, what's next? That's yeah. the question. So you go out on the street, there's nobody there. <laughs> there is a peculiar smell, which you'll figure out what that is in a minute. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so <laughs> what do you do? You're in a, a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Yeah, and this is what survivalists uh, are getting obsessed with in developing all those... Uh, yeah. Skills. Skills to survive after something happens. And yet I, you know, the the survivalists, you see a lot of this survivalist stuff is it's all about stockpiling as many guns as possible, as much (laughs) ammo as possible. I think that's also a lot of based in movies. Yeah. You know, thinking that you will go Mad Max style. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Uh And obviously... um, uh, stockpiling tinned goods is obviously a very good idea. That it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you uh, think about this kind of apocalyptic scenario for not very long, you'll realise that all that stuff will eventually run out. Of course. 
eventually will run out. Of everything, right? Uh-huh. And if we talk about the Mad Max type scenario, uh-huh. which I always find highly amusing, but uh, one of the things that is funny about that is how long does petrol last, right? It's actually not uh-huh. very long. It's, no. a, it's about two to three years. That's all you And that's got. all. And it doesn't work anymore. Any survivor yeah. would fight for it, of course. Yeah, but... After two, that, you need to find something years, else. You've got to find something else. All the volatiles all evaporate, and there's nothing, yeah. nothing left. So, once you are okay, mm-hmm. and you see that around in the streets, mm-hmm. that smell of rotting corpses of the people that die, because there's nobody to... Bury them. Bury them. Burn them. Burn or anything. Yeah. And certainly, you cannot go trying to burn everybody dead around in a big city. There aren't that many matches left in the world. Yeah. So I would save those matches. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so, worth doing. They said that the first thing you should be doing yeah. would be first get some supplies, get proper outdoor clothes. Good place to go. Camping uh, stores. Yes. Get good clothing. Uh-huh. Get all the kind of, you know, the... Canned food. Canned food from supermarkets, obviously. Uh-huh. Some tools. Some tools and... Go to the wilderness. Of course, solar panels are a good thing to get hold uh-huh. of. Or portable generators. Because in the first few days, <laughs> obviously, you're not thinking too far ahead. You just need something to survive, right? Uh-huh. And if you then... Um, think about certain technological aids that we have at the moment, they're not going to last long at all. So, for example, the internet, despite (laughs) the evidence in the movies... No, it's uh, not going to work anymore. I, because I come from a technology background, as you do, Rafa, um, and I did a lot of work in the mobile industry over many, many years, I know that modern... um, Communications uh, systems like uh, cellular phone technology, like the internet, are effectively in a constant state of failing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They require constant attention to keep them going. So as soon as that attention isn't there, they will begin to fail uh-huh. immediately, right? Now, the brilliant thing about the internet is that the whole point of it the whole point of its original development was yeah. to be robust, right? So it could fail, but the packets would find another route. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, all those routes will fail. Uh-huh. It wouldn't surprise me. Within a week, I would have thought. Yeah. I would have yeah. thought within a week. Mobile phone technology, within a week, I would have mm-hmm. thought. And then if you look at uh, GPS, mm-hmm. um, it is estimated that GPS will work for the first few weeks. Yeah, maybe up to a month or something like that. But But because they're not being uh, adjusted, the orbits are not being adjusted and calibrated. Eventually they will just... Within months, they'll be useless. Absolutely Mm -hmm. useless. So that's GPS gone, internet's gone, phone's gone. Yeah. Right? So... Anything technological is gone, practically. Yeah, because it's so fragile, right? Now, probably some solar panels mm. would help you. I think so. Eventually, until they something happens to them. Well, they don't have a super life, but no. but they'll probably last longer than um, being able to find 
batteries, petrol, or petrol for yeah. your generator. Right? Uh huh. Uh huh. So when when the when you can no longer find viable fuel, your solar panels will probably still work because mm-hmm. they probably last ten fifteen years. Yes, probably. I would have thought so. So the 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 idea is that within the first few days, you need to uh, get the basics that you need, and uh, find bottled water, canned food, yeah. and that will get you through the initial period. And then you're into the first few weeks. And after being just like this, mm. if you just stay like this, like a gatherer, mm. will not take you farther. It, well, it's not a long-term solution, is it? And, no. And uh, obviously, most people today live in cities or mm-hmm. large towns, and those large towns and cities are going to be very unpleasant places to be. Yes. Because obviously of the concentration of dead people. First of all, <laughs> you are survive the stench and the infections. You are literally going to be tripping over them. Water can be totally infected. Absolutely. So you can only trust bottled water mm-hmm. until you can figure out how to make your own uh, treated water. Mm-hmm. Right? Which, uh, there's a very interesting... Uh, uh, mention here of a technique a very simple technique used yeah. by the recommendation of the yeah. world health organization that's right which is you put the water in a plastic bottle yeah. and leave it in open in the sun yeah and the uv the, the uv itself it goes through the bottle yeah yeah kill all the which microbes fantastic in there. right yeah how simple is that it's as simple as that but how many people knows this well let's face it we know very little right exactly we depend a lot in on other people. On other people. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so these first few weeks, right, uh, let us say, obviously, you're still being able to find water, bottled water. Uh-huh. So, obviously, there's a lot of that about. Uh, but you probably want to be moving out of the town and the... Mm-hmm. Move out of the town or the city, but don't go too far away. So You still need to come back at least until it's available. To do the shopping, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I don't mean fresh goods here. <laughs> strictly dried goods and tin goods. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the other thing you've got to be concerned about is other people, because there will be other survivors. But, yeah. But you have to be very careful, I think. Because point. this kind of situation would affect people totally different. People do so crazy stuff. Right? There will be people that will be able to cope with it. Yeah. And there will be people that will go crazy, and movie are, style. And there are people who will take advantage. Yes. And here I actually see how come, how some people would come to become cannibals, for example. Hmm. We've been here before, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, there's no more food. People may, might fight for canned food and so on. Yeah. But then you have a, this lot of bodies. And you're immune. <laughs> You're immune. And like I said, some people get affected more than others. So yeah. maybe some just would rely on that for survival. It's good eating, right? <laughs> Although we talked about, <laughs> about <laughs> the calories that you can get from a body. Yeah, it's not that brilliant. No. Right? Yeah. I I actually, I think the problem, the only way that would work would be if this pathogen that has wiped out 99% of the population uh-huh. preserved the bodies. Yeah. Because otherwise they're going to rot within a week. Well, we're mm-hmm. going to start rotting with And nobody wants to go there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't think there'll be a lot of cannibalism because uh, 
True. It isn't, that, it? It's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, maybe in, you know, Greenland or Iceland or, <laughs> you know, where we can just put Let's the Let's preserve them. Yeah, let's pile them there. Let's, let's pile it up like firewood. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Shall I go out and get another body? Well, <laughs> another leg today. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I think anywhere where it's temperate. Of uh, course, it's still temporary. It, it's, it's not going to work, is it? So, so the thing is, you can get through the first few weeks with your dry goods and your tin goods and you and trying to avoid other people would probably be a good idea and uh-huh. unless you can be very certain about them so then now you're into the first few months right so oh. your main concern is probably you're going to be finding it more difficult to find water mm-hmm. uh, bottled water so this is where you just mentioned this excellent way of uh, kind of killing pathogens in water yeah. is this ultraviolet treatment. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the obvious one is boiling the water, but that uses a lot of fuel. Unless you know how to do fire and you can gather wood, create mm-hmm. a fire and boil it. That's a lot of wood, though. And actually, in this book... <laughs> that book? <laughs> it actually tells you it's got some very interesting numbers on how much wood you actually need to do this stuff. And... Believe me, you'll literally be out there every day gathering wood just to make water, uh-huh. pure, uh, purified water. It is unbelievable. This is why, uh, you know, industrialization made such a big difference. True. Is that people didn't have to forage so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, you can, if you live in a sunny climes, sunny countries, you can use solar uh, heating to boil, mm-hmm. to boil water. You don't need to use fuel. So, anyway, the thing is that once you've run out of bottled water and you've run out of purification tablets, you have to start making your own water. And one of the things you can do is use chlorine mm-hmm. uh, from or bleach. Mm-hmm. Ordinary kitchen bleach diluted. Of course. Will clean up water. And still... Those will be limited resources. You're going to run out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, uh, with some very basic chemistry, which is really important, you can start to make your own chemicals that you can then use to treat water. And uh, these are the kinds of things you're going to have to start doing because you're just not going to be able to find uh-huh. uh, the sources that you need. And another very interesting thing is the importance of cleanliness. Yeah. Particularly washing your hands. hands. Uh, Again, in the book it goes more into it, but it's something like uh, if you wash your hands uh, regularly, uh, you reduce the, um, the dangers of pathogens being on your hands by, it's something like 60% or something. So mm-hmm. it's a really simple thing to do. Um, yeah. And can prevent an awful lot of... Uh, that, that reminds me, uh, I think, about, uh, you know, how many times people, for example, stop in the road, you're in the road, and you stop in a gas station to go to the bathroom. Mm. And, you know, you go to the bathroom, you wash your hands, but mm. then you go and touch the handle. Oh, that, the way that out. That hand, the way out. Yeah. The handle, for sure, has more <laughs> germs, germs that... Than the toilet seat, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because I think uh, I don't think we mentioned it on the program, but we, we you and I had a conversation about what are the most germ-ridden things in everyday life, <laughs> and apparently, currently, the most germ-ridden 
surface that you can come across is not a toilet seat or anything like that. It is the pull-down table on the back of a seat on an aeroplane. Yeah. It has more germs on it than anything else that's been tested. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I'm not squeamish at all, but I certainly <laughs> do. I now think <laughs> twice about touching the table because they don't clean them, right? Yeah. They should actually just, or maybe you should carry on... Uh, your own. <laughs> Some wet towels to disinfect or something yeah. like that. And Well, full hazmat suit. <laughs> sat on sat on plane, right? Uh-huh. I mean, could they stop you? Really? Yeah. I don't know. Well, you know what they do with the sprays, no? That sometimes they go spraying the whole airplane while you are still in. And oh, yeah. That's before for, landing. Isn't that for insects and... Uh, um, I'm, I'm not sure it's for the benefit of the... Oh, sort of flu and stuff like that. Right. And, that isn't a CIA um, plot, is it? I don't know. It's a bit obvious, but... <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so soap, right? Soap. Again, soap. Obviously, you're going to find a lot of soap for a good deal. A while, mm-hmm. but it's not going to last very long. But it is actually quite simple to make. So, mm-hmm. again, you have to get down some really simple chemistry... Uh, and it's all in this uh, book, How to Do It. Uh, so you've now survived the first few years. Yeah. Sorry, the first few months. You're right to the few years. So now we're getting into the few years. What do you do now? And the most important thing you must do is relearn agriculture. That is uh, absolutely critical. Key. Yeah, it's a, it's a critical point. And I think it's a fair point that... I have no idea how to do that. How to do pollinization, for example. I, and I don't even know how to prepare the ground. I don't, uh-huh. I don't even know where I'd find the seeds to actually put in the ground. Uh-huh. Unless I went to a shop. <laughs> and get the seeds from the, <laughs> yeah, from the rack. Well, that right? would be a good uh, a thing to do for first. A while. Stock up on well, them. Once you plant some and yeah. you grow them, you can obtain from the same product the seeds. Yeah, you can if they've not been genetically modified, obviously. Oh, you know, some yeah, of these, point. they won't actually they won't. reseed. Uh-huh. They don't work. Good point, yeah. Um, but this concept of uh, planting cereal crops uh, is the uh, <laughs> something you have to learn as quickly as possible. And there is a very interesting statistic about uh, cultivating crops and civilization, which is that... Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the basics of uh, kind of civilization is the concept of a food surplus. So yeah. you, you have to be able to cultivate more food than you actually need. Um, by creating surpluses, you've again, then got, for example, something to trade with, or what it means is that, for example, if one person can cultivate enough uh, cereal crops to feed 10 people, then those 10 people... Can focus on something else. Can do something else. Like... Specializations. Yeah. Making charcoal, making uh-huh. some basic chemicals to do mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Like we talked also in one of the previous uh, shows regarding uh, seasteading. Yeah. Having colonies specialised in certain things yeah. could come up to create again... Yeah. Uh, very working yeah. little town or... Yeah, you'd have to kind of... You can almost imagine you might end up with t- t- 
small villages or communities mm-hmm. that specialised in a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Something, yeah, really. Because, of course, if you're going to press the reset button on civilization, we don't have to repeat the same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. We could think of something else, like instead of money would be a good idea. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try and avoid that a whole money thing the second time around, right? Something interesting, mm. as years, we're now in years. We are in the years now, yeah. Um, do you think it would be viable to return to the cities? But then, After there's no more bodies, there's no more stuff, at least for housing, for but without protection el- but without, from the environment. But without electricity, what are you going to do for lighting? And- well, same as you would do outside, I suppose. Yes, I know, but if you, you build your own shelter by now, you should have built something by now. Well, the, the smart, if you're smart, you go and find yourself a farmhouse or uh-huh. and go and live in that, don't you? Where they've got quite a bit of the stuff you need. Yeah. Get the old dead bodies out, get them out, <laughs> move in. Yeah. Um, potentially, again, what we don't know is whether this pathogen, this is an interesting point, does it just kill humans or does it kill all animals? Animals. Because if it just killed humans, obviously you could find a farm and potentially there's... Still with animals there. You've got your cows and your sheep and your goats and you... Yeah. I never thought of that, actually. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But it all depends, doesn't it, on on what happens. So, again, once you're into the decade survival, um, again, you have to... Think about sustainability and producing surpluses because that is the very yeah. that is the very bedrock of building a sustainable society is fuel pro- fuel and producing more food than you actually need right mm-hmm. now and fuel as it says uh, in the notes um, because we can't repeat the oil thing. Uh-huh. because there is no oil easily available now. Uh, you have to kind of potentially revert back to either um, kind of uh, ethanol-based stuff from mm-hmm. zero crops, um, or you can actually burn the vapours from, um, it's called uh, gasification. So, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. if you burn, inverted commas, wood in a sealed container... It produces, char- capture. it produces charcoal, but the gases yeah. that are coming off, you can actually push that into a combustion engine and it will run. It will run for sure. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, in, in World War Two, and yes, that actually happened, people, World War II, <laughs> that, that's real. Yeah. Uh, World War Two with that fellow Hitler in uh, uh-huh. Europe, um, in World War Two, there were over two million uh, gas-powered cars that were using... A uh, wood, mm. uh, gasification of wood, driving around Europe. Yeah. Two million. Now, you may not think two million is a lot, but we're talking about 80, 70, 80 years ago, and there weren't the numbers of cars there are now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, it well, is... Yeah. the moment you reach charcoal, mm. when you can have charcoal... There's all kinds of stuff. Then you can do bricks, glass, yeah. you know... Glass many other things. Well, glass, strangely, is actually a really, really important thing to get back to be able to make because, as it says in the book, 
That book. The book. Um, glass, uh, because of its nature, that is, it's chemically unreactive, blah, 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 uh-huh. was absolutely crucial to uh, the discoveries that we've made to create the world we've got currently mm-hmm. and will be absolutely essential to um, get back to something like um, the level of civilization that we have. So mm-hmm. you, in order to react chemicals, you need glass containers to do that in blah, 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 blah. And the interesting thing about this rebooting thing, this how to get things going again, is a very interesting, we talked about this before, I think, there's a very interesting observation about how did we get to where we are, right? (laughs) Yes, how long have we got? Uh The thing is that um, there were certain key developments that certain key discoveries and certain key inventions that brought about immense changes in how we Mm -hmm. uh, lived, right? But those inventions were largely either based on accidental discoveries or decades and decades and decades and decades of fumbling around in the dark trying to figure things out. Now, the the idea of having a primer book or document... Mm -hmm is that you can shortcut all that stuff by yeah. knowing what these crucial things are. This uh, this is a lot uh, like um, the book of the foundation by uh, Isaac Asimov. Asimov, yeah. So yeah. There, there's a cycle mm. of civilization, and when you go through the dark ages, it will take you 1,000 years to return to be... Right, to get back there. Back to where you were. Yeah. The point of civilization culmination, yeah. let's say. But uh, that's why they decided to create the foundation mm-hmm. in a separate world where they will uh, collect all the knowledge mm. and try to secure it so that when the dark time comes... They can rebuild You reduce... Mm. The number of dark uh, age the, times. The startup yeah. time. Uh-huh. So, something like this. In fact, I, if I recall correctly, mm. there were some uh, projects of trying to build up like a underground mm. library that well, could conceal all the knowledge. There is, in fact, uh, if we talk about agriculture, uh-huh. there is, in fact, the, uh, the um, archive, seed archive at Svalbard. Oh, yeah. Is it Antarctica or in the North Pole? Greenland or Iceland. Yeah, something like that, yeah. It's one of those islands in the north. Uh, In the north. On the top bit of the Mm -hmm. globe. Uh, There is a a seed bank there, and um, that is absolutely full of um, uh, seeds that can be used to restart um, crops. Uh And it's thousands and thousands and thousands of different species. And I believe there is another one... Um, I can't, I'm trying to remember what it is now, but, uh, and there are also, I think we've had this discussion before about how do you preserve knowledge? Now, obviously, uh-huh. obviously paper's really good, right? Paper, yes. Good quality paper is fantastic. Uh, but if we talk about, if you had electricity, if we talk about data on CDs or flash drives, not going to last that long, I'm afraid. Uh-huh. But there are companies that actually manufacture, um, CDs. But the CDs, I know one CD is like glass. The material is glass, uh-huh. the substrate. Yeah. And these are, these are guaranteed for something like a thousand years. Uh-huh. Right? That's like Superman and the... 
Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Every crystal had information stored in it. Right. Well, these uh. these uh, glass substrate CDs, you can buy them now, and they're not that expensive. I think they're about $100 each. Uh-huh. Uh, they have tremendous life. And there's another one that is based on, I think, a titanium substrate. Yeah, but if you had electricity, what if you don't have electricity? Well, then you use them as coasters to put your uh, <laughs> your beer mug on. <laughs> because Because no matter what happens, you're going to figure out how to make beer as quickly as possible. <laughs> To be able to cope with everything. <laughs> to, to get through the, those long weekends. Right? So I thought before we finish, yeah. uh, because obviously time is marching on here, I'd just like to touch on, I know you've got some of the stuff you may want to touch on, but I'd just like to touch on work that has been done into how might civilization collapse. Uh-huh. Right. So if we forget about plagues mm-hmm. and all this stuff, are there forces within civilization itself that could uh, uh, bring an end to things? Yeah. And interestingly, um, there is there have been a number of studies done, and I'm going to cut this short, but um, there was a study done in 2014, and the findings there were that there were two main mm-hmm. factors that would bring about the collapse of civil- Western civilization anyway. And the two factors were ecological strain, which I I don't think needs a lot of explanation. Uh Uh, But they actually found there was a surprise factor for them, which was economic stratification is what they called it. And basically, I'm just going to kind of quote the study here. It says that under this scenario, elites push society toward instability and eventual collapse by hoarding huge quantities of wealth and resources, leaving little or none for the rest of us who vastly outnumber them and yet are expected to provide the labour. Right? Eventually the working population crashes and, of course, the elites then crash because there's no yeah. to do the labour. Uh, And basically, um, the inequalities that we can actually see within Western societies Uh today point towards this uh, inevitable outcome. And there is a very depressing fact, which is that uh, the top 10% of global earners are responsible for almost as much total greenhouse gas emissions as the bottom mm-hmm. 90%. Yeah. And that uh, about half the world's current population lives on less than $3 a day, which is staggering, right? Yeah, that's causing the, the distance between the rich and the poor and yeah. causing those uh, instabilities. Yes, and uh, another study was done by a guy called um, Thomas Homer Dixon. He's the chair of Global Systems at the uh, Basili School of International Affairs in Canada. Uh-huh. And he is the author of a book or a study called The Upside of Down. And <laughs> you know, it's a good title. And he uh, posited in this book that, or the study, that basically the things that ultimately cause the failure is actually a slow build-up of what he called tectonic 
stresses yeah. that actually build to a point where there's then a kind of a... A break. A break. And um, in that study, uh, he was talking about increasing occurrences of what experts call non-linearities or sudden unexpected changes in the world order, such as the 2008 economic collapse, yeah. the rise of terrorist organisations like uh, ISIS, ISIS or whatever. Brexit. Brexit, or... Mr... The Donald. The right? Donald election. Yeah, and I think in other areas of study, these are referred to as black swan events, which are kind of unexpected mm-hmm. yeah. events that cause all kinds of disruption. Um, so, yes... Uh, just to kind of wrap that up, um, Joseph Tainter, a professor of environment and society at Utah State University, he is the author of uh, a study called The Collapse of Complex Societies. And he uh, made a very interesting uh, observation, which was that complex societies kind of obey the laws of thermodynamics yeah. in that it takes increasing amount of increasing amounts of energy to maintain any system in a complex ordered state and human societies are just such a system and that if it loses this energy which might be something as simple as financial energy mm-hmm. the whole thing will just fall apart like a house of cards yeah so so to wrap up some books some before we finish very quick books Uh, I think we've already covered one of them, The Knowledge by Lewis Darnold, winner of five awards, absolutely brilliant book, Mm -hmm. uh, which I've uh, read and is fantastic. Uh, If we then look at a science fiction book, this is a very famous book, actually, A Canticle for Leibowitz, Uh which was published in 1984 by Walter M. Miller. And that is about a monk who... um, If I just give you a quick praise, it says, In the depths of the Utah desert, long after the flame deluge has scoured the earth clean, a monk of the order of St. Leibowitz has made a miraculous discovery. Mm -hmm. Holy relics from the life of the great saint himself, including the blessed blueprint, the sacred shopping list, (laughs) and the hallowed shrine of the fallout shelter. Wow. This is a really interesting book, actually. Very Mm -hmm. book. And then movies. Yeah. Have you seen this one, The Road? The Road. No, I have not seen this one. It's incredible. I don't recall. It's incredibly depressing, as is the Uh book. But I I know the next one. I Am Legend. I love that film. Yeah. Yeah, very good film. And... And the last one is a game, actually. A game, yeah. Do you know this one? No, I never played this one either. No. The Last of Us, it's called. Yeah, from uh, PlayStation. Yeah, by a company called Naughty Dog. Uh Uh-huh. And it seems that the player controls Joel, which is a smuggler, tasked with escorting a teenage girl named Ellie across the post-apocalyptic US. Yeah. So The Last of Us is played from a third-person. It's a third-person game. yeah. And you use, of course, like uh, some shooter uh, games, firearms, improvised weapons. You can use stealth to defend against hostile humans and cannibalistic creatures. Cannibalistic creatures. Of course. And everything is like infected by the mutated strain of the Q. 
cordyceps fungus. Mm. This is a lot rem rem uh, like very close to what was uh, Silent Hill and uh, Resident right. Evil. Yeah, there's only so many tanks yeah. you can do. Uh -huh, it, right? uh -huh. But um, yeah, there's plenty to go out there. Um, mm -hmm. I would certainly recommend the book, The Knowledge. The Knowledge, yes. Uh, is fantastic. Because the book is... Uh, yeah, the book. The book. Here it is. <laughs> and that's just a few of the pages. Yes. But there are more. There are some at the back, for example. Those were at the back. Um, it is a very good book. Very entertaining. Very yeah. informative. Okay. So that's it for the topic of today. Okay. Let's Thank move on to and finally. Oh yeah, let's do the and finally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this and finally is quite um, interesting thing. It's this Air Force secret kind of space plane, uh -huh. the X thirty seven B, which is kind of looks very much like a space shuttle, but it's yeah like a, a mini-me version of the space shuttle. Mm -hmm. And it launches uh, vertically on uh -huh. the top of a military rocket. Yeah. And it goes off and does its various mysterious things and secret things. And then <laughs> and then it actually lands um, very much like the space shuttle used to, um, a gliding landing uh -huh. on, on a standard runway. And in fact, I think it has just, Broken a record, I think. A record? For the longest... Well, I think it's the longest on-orbit um, uh -huh. mission. I think it's two years. Two but years. There, there are actually two of them. Um, 718 days I see now here. Yeah. I believe it's not the longest because there are some communication satellites that... Uh -huh. But in terms of something going up and coming back down, um, it is... I understand is is the longest. Thing. Now it's interesting that it's the mm. uh, it stayed that long. Mm. It was a secret mission, secret, uh, except for a few things that they are saying that were tested. Yeah, yes, which was guidance, navigation, and control, mm. the thermal protection systems, yeah. and so on. Yeah, it's a kind of standard shopping list of things you might want to test, I suppose. Yeah. And then I think there was one other thing they admitted to testing, I think. Oh, it was an experimental propulsion system. So that would be the, the warp drives, presumably. Warp drives. Ooh. Quick test out to Jupiter and back, <laughs> you know, something like that. Well, that's interesting, actually. Is it? No. Well, the trip to Jupiter or? <laughs> Both. If, or the propulsion if it would system. Be, yeah, the propulsion system. I mean, there are some interesting technologies that are... Um, Supposedly under test at the moment, and uh -huh. um, maybe they're testing some of those kind of electric propulsion technology uh -huh. and things like that. But the the Air Force have two of these X thirty seven Bs, and um, of course they never tell you where they are. But apparently one of them's on the ground, uh -huh. um, while the other one's on orbit. Yeah, it says here that the first OTV one, as it was called, yeah. Was lifted off, lifted off on April twenty second, two thousand and ten. Yeah, spending two hundred and twenty four days. Yes. Then the OTV two launched on March fifth, two thousand eleven, mm. and orbited Earth for four hundred and sixty eight days. Mm. And 
uh, OTB3 began on December 11th, 2012, and lasted 674 days. Right. So the time, every time... Is going up. It's yeah. going up, 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 yeah. up. Do you think that this is preparing them for a long trip, for example, Mars? Well, it's not very big, is it? It's only 8.8 meters long, I think. It's not that... It's, no. It's nothing, is it? No. It's like uh, it's like as long as a... It's not as long as a... a a coach, a bus. Uh-huh. But imagine that, for example, uh, uh, in Star Wars, mm-hmm. have you seen uh, when, for example, the Jedi uh, uh, spaceships, that, they attach to a kind of a ring oh, yeah. that provides them the extra mm-hmm. power for propulsion and just, oh. you know, when they arrive to their destination in orbit, they, dump they detach yeah. and they go down. They go down. Oh. And they can maneuver more. I wasn't aware. That's an interesting idea, huh? Or this type of... All kinds of those kinds of ideas, aren't they? Um, Mm. But in the notes that we have about these missions, of course, it refers to the longest continuous missions, which, of Uh course, are Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, which were launched in 1977. And they're still... Sending back data. And in fact, they are thought now to be on the very edge of the... In fact, they're generally thought to be uh, just entering interstellar space. So apparently the communication rate... is still flowing. You and I remember modems and all that kind of rubbish, right? Well, the rate uh, that they achieve with Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 is something like 12 bits a second or something. (laughs) Oh, my. Uh, But there's something like, what is it, they're 3 billion miles away or something. It's, yeah, it's already beyond. Yeah, yeah, they are. So Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are still going, but of course they were not recoverable. No. Um, but this X-37B is not a manned vehicle. It is a autom- uh, It's automated. It's a robot robotic uh-huh. vehicle. Um, although, you know, you can't believe everything. For some reason, I can't believe everything <laughs> that the military tell me. I mean, look at look at it. It's not that, but we've got some photos. It's, yeah. It's really, it's not much bigger than a big estate car, is it? Yeah, yeah. I know. You can check the link uh, uh, down in the show notes. Yes, there are some men. To the article, and you will see the... Men in hazmat suits. No, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But interesting. It's an interesting technology, but it's not new. It's actually been around a fair amount of time. Yeah, according to the first mission of 2010, that's already seven years. Yeah, and I, I believe it's way older. And probably, than yeah. <laughs> um, so... We'll see what comes next with that. Yeah. If we ever get to find out. We don't know, we right? Don't, we don't know. It could be right over us at this moment. We'd never know. Ooh. Maybe listening to us right now. I I hope they've got more important things to listen to. <laughs> but, but you just don't know, right? <laughs> anyway, so that's that's that, it. That's it. Yeah. That's RM finally. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we reached the end of the episode. Yeah, that was uh, interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you've got to wonder whether you want to survive an apocalypse, right? Yeah. I mean, 
Hmm. It's uh, there's there's nothing good you can say about it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Other than I suspect the air will get very clean very quickly. <laughs> Or not. Depends on the type of apocalypse apocalypse that it would happen. And it depends how long it takes all those bodies to rot away. Uh I don't know how I don't know how long that takes. Do we know? Well months probably do. Plus taking in consideration the wind will carry on the smells, you know, farther away from just the place. Yeah. The problem is if it's the whole planet, there's nowhere to move upwind from. (laughs) Yeah. Unless maybe you go to the North Pole, I don't know. Ooh, and then uh, you'll have another set of problems. Probably. But probably. lots of preserved meat. <laughs> yes, your own fridge. <laughs> That's right. Without the need of electricity or anything. That's right. So, very interesting subject. Yeah. Um, share, share your comments with us. Yeah. What do you think? What, do you, what would you do in case of an apocalypse? And are you more inclined to, to act on these kinds of potential scenarios now than you were a year ago? Uh-huh, good question. You know, do you feel more, more pressure insecure to... yeah, uh-huh. or less enthusiastic or optimistic about the future? Yeah, because of these worldwide events yeah. happening around. Because there's a lot of weird yeah. stuff going on. Right? True. Okay. Okay, that's it. We'll talk to you next week. Down the road with home. Bye. <laughs>